The following message is from the 2013 IBCD Summer Institute, Churches Equipped to Care. All right, we're going to go ahead and get started, and then, uh, Lord willing, we'll be able to have some helpful discussion um, towards the end. I'd like to open with uh, reading a passage of Scripture from Romans chapter 8. And in verse 14, the Apostle Paul says, For all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are sons of God. For you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit Himself testifies with our spirit that we are the children of God. And if children, heirs also of God, and joint heirs with Christ. So let's pray. Father, we thank you that you've given to us the Holy Spirit of adoption. We thank you that the Lord Jesus has done everything necessary to bring us into your family legally, and we thank you that the Holy Spirit has provided us everything to experience that reality. And we thank you for this time, and we commit it to you, and we pray that you would help us to think biblically that you would shape our hearts according to your word. Uh, Lord, whether we have adopted children of our own or we minister to people, we pray that you would use your word to equip us uh, in in these situations. In Jesus' name, amen. I mentioned last night that uh, in March I was in China and I was uh, talking to the missionary and he asked me if I was working on on uh, on any books at the present time, and I told him, well, I, I'm kind of trying to get through this uh, book on adoption. He goes, oh, like the theological doctrine of adoption? I said, well, foundationally, yes, but really focusing on difficulties in, in adoption. And all of a sudden, he, he uh, took great interest, and he started asking me, what, what are you going to be talking about? So I started telling him, And after about a half hour, he said, would you please, after Sunday service, meet with three families in our church? And so there I was in in Kunming, China, meeting with three families, speaking through an interpreter, listening to them tell me all of their struggles. And you know what? They're exactly the same kinds of things that not only we've experienced, but that I've talked to many other people who experience the very same thing. And so these, uh, these challenges and these trials are, are common. And um, my thesis last night was if we're going to actually experience God's grace uh, to help meet these challenges, we have to be honest about them and not act like somehow they don't really exist. So last night we, we touched on... Um, Guarding our hearts, right? Guarding against a romanticized view of adoption. Um, guarding against the idol of the perfect family. Um, guarding against the idol of domestic peace and quiet. And then we talked about helping our children through grace. And one of the big things there last night was um, coming to that place where we actually see that we may have to change our parenting strategies for this child 
um, that goes out of what we have uh, sometimes really sort of set up in our own minds as sort of an uncompromising standard of how we're supposed to deal with our children. And uh, so I suggested last night that beginning to think like them, helping, uh, trying to take their perception of what's happening and, and try your best to, to think like they are thinking. Um, didn't have time to do this last night, but I did want to point out from um, the uh, book that I recommended with some caution, Sherry Eldridge. She says, uh, the true experts, adoptees themselves, put it, that is the struggle, the bewilderment, in much more earthly terms. These are all quotes from adoptees that she interviewed. It's a vague feeling inside that something's wrong. It feels like part of me is missing. It's an intangible battle between heart and soul. I've spent my whole life roaming, never felt stable. I search for answers I am never sure I can find. I look at life through a lens of rejection, expecting it at every turn. One of the best things that we can do is Colossians 3.12 in putting on a heart of compassion, trying to think like our kids think. Remember, they're interpreters. They're running all of life experience through this interpretive grid. That interpretive grid is radically different than your interpretive grid. Okay? That interpretive grid is, is uh, inescapable for them. In, in many ways, they cannot help the way that they think. And so this takes a tremendous amount of patience. It's kind of just easy. I mentioned this last night. Um, you, you know the joke about men. Um, have you guys seen the nail in the forehead? It's just, have you guys seen that YouTube? It's hilarious. What is it? It's just a nail or, oh, it's all of, it's not, it's not about the nail, right? Um, what, what's so funny about that is that the, there's a lady who's got a nail in her forehead. It's not real, obviously. And um, the husband's there trying to, he wants to help her, right? And he wants, he's like, you got a nail in your forehead. And she keeps saying, it's not about the nail. And the whole thing is, is pretty funny about how husbands and wives relate to each other. What does the husband want to do? He wants to fix it. Let's get the nail out. What does the wife do? It's not about the nail. So there's this fundamental difference. Well, that's, you know, that's how we are, basically, as men, is we have this kind of like this fix-it mode. We want to take care of things, um, and uh, you know, we want to apply Scripture. We want to take care of it. Um, sometimes when we're dealing with our, with our children, we so often want to just jump to fix-it mode. Now, oftentimes with, with uh, your natural children, that's what they expect from dad. They expect dad to be there to fix it. They expect dad to be there with an answer. The problem is, is that sometimes we start to think that we're experts, and yet then we're dealing with the adopted child, and the adopted child is not that easy. The adopted child requires us to start asking questions. How are they seeing this situation? Why are they acting this way? What is behind it? And I think that we can all um, share examples of, of this in our own lives. And then I mentioned last night that the first, first significant breakthrough in, in our relationship with Alex um, came when he was 13 years old. 
And as I explained that last night, the reason that that was the first significant breakthrough we had ever had with him was because we, uh, I mean, and it was all of God's grace. There's no doubt about that. But we, we stopped long enough to actually listen to him and ask questions of him and gave him the freedom to be able to talk. And, and here's, here's one of the things that we sometimes, um, uh, in a sense, we minimize this. We, we think that somehow we need to protect our children from their, from their backgrounds. And the reality is, is one of the best things that we can do is give them the liberty to be able to talk about it and to talk about it freely and even have the willingness for them to say things that not only we won't understand, but may even be painful for us to hear. And so, uh, giving them that safe environment to talk about being adopted is so crucial. And um, that night was huge for us. It was huge. Now, I want to move on. Um, and this is um, basically uh, helping our children through grace. I have this under the category of blessing and not cursing. How many of you actually counsel people and have ever used Proverbs 15.1? Anybody ever, you know, that just kind of seems to be the, one of those universal counseling texts, right? Okay, everybody knows Proverbs 15.1. It's a gentle anger turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger, right? We, we, we tell people that all the time, don't we? Well, as parents, oftentimes we don't apply that very easily or very quickly. It's usually one of the, one of the it's, it's kind of lower on our uh, hierarchy of important <clears throat> scriptures, right? We usually have, you know, something like, um, children, obey your parents in the Lord for this is right. And that's what, you know, that's what's going to govern this conversation. And uh, yet the Bible tells us very clearly that harsh words stir up anger, okay, well, that's absolutely true with our children. It's true with our adopted children. And a gentle answer turns away wrath. The psalmist in Psalm 141 verse 3 says, Put a guard over my mouth. It's also funny to me that we don't usually apply this text to ourselves very often. We apply it to others in counseling. James 1.19, let every one of you be what? Slow to speak. Yeah, quick to hear and slow to anger, right? So, I mean, we, we tell people that all the time. And what I want to suggest is one of the best ways that we can start to minister to our children is by, first of all, making sure that we put a guard over our mouth. One of the things that, that, that I feel most guilty about looking back over the years are the very things that have come out of my mouth things that actually have done nothing but to reinforce his fear of being rejected as opposed to assuage that fear. And when, when, when we realize that out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks, if I'm saying things that fit into the category of cursing, not blessing, 
then at that point, there's stuff that's going on inside of my heart in relationship to this kid that are so completely out of alignment with the Word of God that those words should stop me in my track so that I realize I, I'm sinning right now. And I'm not only just sinning, I'm sinning against God and I am undermining my relationship with this child. And so, we put a guard over our mouth and we make sure that we avoid harmful words. Proverbs 18.21, death and life are in the power of the tongue. So that night when, when I went into his room and Ariel and Alex were sitting there, um, at that point I realized when, when he said those words, I wonder if mommy is going to want to get rid of me too. I realized that when I had told him six months before, if you don't behave, if you don't start, if you don't start becoming a responsible person and a respectful person, I'm going to find mili a military school for you. <clears throat> At that point, I determined that I would never, ever, ever say anything like that again. Ever. Now, I will tell you that one of my fellow elders is a district court judge and when we were having an especially difficult time I did take him to Judge Gamble's chamber and uh, left him there and Dave put him in a holding cell for about 20 minutes and uh, yeah, that, that was that had an impact for about 10 minutes so <laughs> so put a, make sure you put a guard over your mouth it's so easy to get in the midst of that conflict and then you end up just saying things that you don't you don't mean but they certainly reflect something that's going on in the heart and we have to be careful about that avoid harmful words even if they're saying things like i hate you i wish you weren't my parent um, don't respond in kind. There is something that, first of all, that child is not actually really thinking, I wish I wasn't a part of this family. That's not what they're thinking. Okay? They're saying things, and sometimes they're pushing the envelope to see how much you're willing to take. And sometimes, you know, you do stupid things, where we live, it's 5,000 feet elevation, so we get snow through the winter. And uh, it was about 20 degrees outside, and one night Alex told us that he didn't want to live with us anymore and he was going to run away. And I said, okay. And so he went and got his backpack, and of course he put food in his backpack. <laughs> and uh, he went out and he had, had his short sleeve shirt on, and... Uh, in a backpack, and he went, walked up to the top of the cul-de-sac, turned, sat in the park for about 15 minutes, realized that it was really, really, really cold, and he came back home, and of course, you know what he said? It wasn't like, you know what, I'm sorry, Dad, that was pretty dumb of me, that was foolish. What, what did he say? Why didn't you care about me to come and get me? It was cold out there. Okay? They think about things differently, and sometimes we have to, we have to hold our tongues the most, second most important lesson that we've ever learned is avoid 
escalation, and this of course fits under this category of blessing, not cursing, avoid escalation. What does Ephesians 6 4 tell us? Anybody? Ephesians 6 4. Okay. Fathers, do not exasperate or provoke your children to wrath. And then the Colossians passage, the parallel passage, is uh, Colossians uh, 3.21, fathers do not exasperate your children. So you have, on the one hand, don't provoke your children to wrath, and then on the other hand, don't exasperate your children. Now, here's the thing, is that when we're dealing with natural children, um, we, kinda, we have a better um, uh, instinct with them, right? And so... Um, our natural children often, often, not always, I realize there are glaring exceptions, but they often respond to us with, with more respect and, and, and love, and, and there's a sense in which you know if you're pushing it too hard that you're going to provoke them or you're going to exasperate them. But normally those boundaries are really clear. With, with us, what we noticed was that any time there was any word of correction, any word of correction, there was a, an immediate reaction. Now, I'm not talking about once, I'm not talking about twice, and I'm not talking about a week. I'm talking about every day for years. A word of correction. Now, biblically, do I have the authority as a parent to speak words of correction to my child? And the answer is yes. In fact, I have a biblical responsibility to speak words of correction to my child. But here's a child who every time we would speak a word of correction, he would come back with an argument as to why that was not right. And here's, here's the amazing thing, is that no matter what his brother and sister were standing there saying, like, Alex, just obey mom. Alex, dad is right. It didn't make any difference. He would dig in. Then it became a battle of the wills. And so one of the things that I had been, um, it had been instilled in me in parenting was make sure you don't lose these battles of the will. Right? You don't lose these battles of the will. You lose that battle of the will and, and you will regret it because you'll be giving up ground. You guys have heard this uh, advice, right? Well, that was me. So we've had certain rules, ironclad rules in our house. And one of the primary ones is, you know, don't lie and don't disrespect your parents. Okay? We'll tolerate a lot of things, but disrespect is not one of them. Well, you can imagine, so here we are, we've got this, this standard, which in many ways is a right and a good standard, and then we have this, this child who every single time you say a word of correction, he digs in and can think of 15 reasons why you're wrong, you're stupid, and he doesn't have to obey. Okay? Well, you, you know what happens, right? So no matter how illogical, how irrational, no matter how many witnesses, um, in fact, even like, childhood friends standing around going, Alex, just stop and just pick that up or whatever, right? No matter what, he would dig in and then it would escalate because what would happen is, is in his resistance, in his defiance, then I would dig in because you're breaking one of the ironclad rules of our household, 
right? And if you're going to live in this household, there are certain rules you don't break. And so there would be this escalation, and it would happen, oftentimes it would happen very quickly, and it would happen any time there was any kind of confrontation, any kind of discipline, any kind of correction. And, uh, and so I just always assumed he is, he is defiant and he needs discipline and he needs it now. Okay? Now, you know what's interesting is although he is as defiant as could be, he's not rebellious in the sense of going out, hanging out with friends. He's, he's, he was homecoming king. He's Nevada State champ in discus and third in shot put and MVP basketball player and, and very good-looking kid. And he's this big, strong, strapping kid. And uh, girls from his high school show up to watch his baseball games, you know, and they all sit in the front row. And what does he do on a Friday night? Well, he either goes to the rodeo or the movies with his brother or he stays at home. I mean, he's not out doing things, right? So in that sense, he's not a rebellious kid, but there's this defiance, right? And so every time this would come up, I would just say, defiant, needs discipline, and we're going to do it now. Why? Because justice delayed is not justice at all, right? Okay, so does anybody relate to this as a father, right? Okay, so, well, here's, here's the, here is the, the harsh reality is that for years, years, it never worked once. Okay? I tell people in our, children, in our church, we spank our children by faith, not by sight, right? In other words, you may not see the immediate results, but you keep doing what you're doing, well, here we are for years, and nothing worked. And then one day, my son Zach, who is an astute um, applier of God's Word, especially to his dad, <laughs> he says, Dad, have you ever thought you're provoking Alex to anger? And I felt like saying, you can't even exegete that passage. You leave that, you leave that to me. Okay? <laughs> well, of course, what I did is I did shoot back with, Alex needs to learn to obey. Right? Because to me, what is it? That's the issue. That's the issue. That's the issue. Well, guess what? There was something going on inside of my heart, right? which was making this into a personal insult. His defiance and disobedience was a personal insult to me. And there was a part of me that the, my pride was reacting to that. And so, I never stopped to ask myself, why does he do this? It doesn't make any sense. Why does he do this? Well, here's a complicating factor. My wife is Dominican. That's a complicating factor in and of itself. Um, but, you know, Dominicans are kind of like... Um, you know, they're, they're, they're high-strung people and uh, strong-willed. And so something would happen, and Ariel would say, 
well, we need, there needs to be consequences right now. I'm like, yeah, there needs to be consequences. Well, then one day, Alex was 16, and um, I was very, uh, very angry with his older brother. They were sitting in the living room, and I was, I was reprimanding Zach, and I, I was very angry with him, but it was calm. And as I was talking to Zach, Alex keeps lobbing these comments over. And I said, you need to stop. You need to be quiet. I'm not talking to you. I went back to Zach. Zach is listening. Alex keeps lobbying these comments over. I finally said, you need to just be quiet. You are, you're disrupting. I'll deal with you in a minute. You, go to your room. And he sat there. And he said, no. And uh, to my shame, I felt um, something rage in my heart. It was, it was terrible. And I got so angry at him. I said things to him right there that I should have never, ever said. And he sat there unfazed. At that point, his older brother, who's getting in trouble, starts to tell him, Alex, just go to your room. And Alex says, no. And so he gets up, and he walks over. There's a, there's a path worn out in our carpet from the couch to the refrigerator with Alex. Okay? And he walks over as if nothing is, nothing's going on. And as he walked by me, now I have to tell you again, he's two, he outweighs me by 50 pounds. Okay, and he's not fat, just this big, big kid. And he, I have to look up to him because he's about here. And I said, you need to go to your room. And he squared off with me. And he said, make me. At that point, I realized that there was nothing physically I could do. And I felt so much anger in my heart that I was afraid of what I was going to do. Because honestly, I wanted to punch him. I did. At that point, I told Ariel, call 911. And she looked at me like, are you insane? I said, no, call 911. At that point, our daughter comes out of the room and she says, what's going on out here? And then she realizes her mother is on the phone with the 911 dispatcher and she freaks out. And Alex then realizes that she's on the phone with the 911 dispatcher. And Zach realizes that she's on the phone with the 911 dispatch. And now, all of a sudden, there is, this, there is this strange atmosphere that has descended upon us. And Zach starts crying, 19 years old, starts crying. And he says, this is not what our family is about. Alex went over, sat down on the couch, and started to cry. 
I got on the phone. I said, I think everything's fine here. Well, of course, you know what happens if you dial 911. They don't go, oh, okay. <laughs> they said, uh, we're sorry, but um, the officers will be there in a few minutes. We live in a small community. Two Douglas County Sheriff deputies arrived at our house, and God sent us just the deputies that we needed. We, he walks in. He goes, what's going on here? He asked me what had happened. I told him what happened. He looked at the boys. He said, is that what happened? Both of the boys looked at him and said, that's what happened. And then he looked at Alex, and he says, how old are you? What, about 22? <laughs> Alex says, I'm 16. He says, I don't blame your dad for calling 911. In fact, if you're not going to submit to his authority, I suggest that he call 911 more often. He says, but the next time I come out, I'm going to take you away. So he talked to the boys. He left. They left. We sat there, and I will tell you that as a family, we had a good cry and spent about a half hour praying together like never, ever before. And I bring that up because, remember with the trip quote, those differences will require different parenting strategies from the ones you will use with your natural children. And so what I started to think at that point was, I need to do something different here. Do you know the definition of insanity? You guys have heard this, right? It's doing the same thing over and over and expecting a different outcome. Well, here I was, my wife and I both doing the same thing over and over and over again, expecting a different outcome. And it was not happening. And so at that point, I decided, you know what? I can't spank him anymore, right? That, that kind of went out the window about three, four years before. I'm not going to be able to physically control him anymore. This always escalates. There's never an exception. He never says, oh, Dad, thank you for that word of correction. I know it came from a loving heart, you know, and so I want to obey you right now. It never happens that way. I start thinking there's got to be something that's not working right when he hears that correction and gets confronted. And then I started to notice, thinking back, he gets along with everybody until somebody confronts him. I don't know why. I don't know why. I don't pretend to know why. But I started to think, maybe I am part of the problem. Maybe exasperating him and provoking him to anger looks different than my other kids. And so I told Ariel, I said, from now on, when we give him a word of correction and he snaps back, we're going to de-escalate things. And she says, what do you mean? I said, we will not engage. Once we give that word of correction, we will not engage. Well, she does not mind me telling you this. She thought that was an awful idea. I said, well, that's great for you. You're not the one that has to ultimately deal with him. You just turn to me and say, okay, we'll take care of this now. So we ended up having real tension for about two months. 
over whether or not this was a good idea. Finally, we sat down with a trusted couple. I'll talk about that in a, in a moment. And he convinced us, you need to try that. So, shortly after this, this was, this was an event that I will always, always remember. Ariel to Alex. Alex, where are you going? I'm going out with Zach. We're going to go to the gym. He says, that's fine, but please make sure that you put your dirty clothes away first. He keeps walking. Alex, put your dirty clothes away before you leave. Then you know what she does? She looks at me. So I said, Alex, you're being disobedient to your mother. And that is a sin against God. And he walked out. And Ariel stood there and looked at me and said, are you going to go get him? <laughs> like, what am I supposed to do, really? I mean, just realistically, unless I got a taser or something, you know. I mean, it's just not going to work. I said, no. She took a deep breath, and she said, okay. Literally, five minutes later, her phone rings. Mom, I'm sorry for disobeying you. Would you please forgive me? Of course I forgive you, honey. Is dad there? Yeah. Dad, I'm sorry for being disrespectful and walking out on you. That was wrong. Please forgive me. I'm, you guys got to look at the number. Is that really, it, it, you know, who is this? I said, of course I forgive you. I said, where are you? He said, I'm sitting out here at the bumps. Now, if you go, go up our cul-de-sac, turn left, there's BLM land on the other side of the road, and it's where kids ride their motorcycles and stuff. It's just called the bumps. It's literally two minutes from our house. I said, where are you? He said, I'm sitting out here at the bumps. He drove his truck, went up, pulled over there, and did what? Thought about what he had just done. Okay? He thought about what he had just done. So I want to just, I just want to pose a question, and probably this is more affirmation for me than anything else. Do you think I could have, with words, got him to stop and think about what he was doing? Do you think I could have said, you're not leaving this house until you realize what you're doing? Do you think I would have got anywhere with him? And I can tell you from empirical evidence, the answer would have been no. Because I'd tried literally hundreds of times. And so, he says, I'll be home in a few minutes. I hang up the phone. I look at Ariel, and she looks at me, and she said, I can't believe it. And I said, we need, we need to thank God, first of all, because this is amazing. I said, but, I said, we didn't escalate the situation, and it gave him whatever window of time he needed to process what was happening. There's something about the confrontation 
that leads to this escalation of, of conflict that somehow short circuits him from actually processing what's happening and he just feels like he needs to dig in and defend himself. And so now what do we do? We have, we have a pattern. Ariel has grown more comfortable with it now, all right? And that is this. When he doesn't do what he's supposed to do, when he is defiant, when he's disobedient, either one of us will tell him in a very short, direct sentence what he's doing wrong, okay? We don't just act like it's okay. We tell him what he's doing wrong, and then we tell him what he's supposed to do, and then we leave it at that. And do you know that every time, every time, he has sometime sometimes quickly, sometimes a little later, always taken the initiative in coming back to us and asking for forgiveness. And then what happens is that then let, leads to other opportunities for me to say to him, you know, Alex, you need to think about why you react so strongly uh, to any correction, and you need to think about what's going on in your own heart. You need to think about how that actually uh, relates to your own relationship to God, because God tells us what to do through His Word all the time. I'm able to have conversations with Him about what, what kind of husband do you want to be? What kind of father do you want to be? Do you want to be the kind of person that always gets angry in the midst of any kind of confrontation? Or do you want, and then I try to point Him to the gospel, but I could never, I truly, honestly, could never have those conversations conversations with him at any point before. Now I have those conversations with him all the time. And, and it's not magic. It's just, you know, and it took us a very long time to think about doing something different because we were so convinced that we must be doing it right with him because we were following the rules. That was the second major breakthrough for us and so the first breakthrough was stopping and listening to him and hearing how he sees his life and his fears and the second major breakthrough was just being committed to not escalating a situation now what about when things get out of control um, I went to seminary with a guy. He and I graduated at the same time in 1993 and um, hadn't seen him in years. And one day out of the blue, he calls the church. He says, I'm up at Lake Tahoe. Can I come see you? I said, sure, I'd love to see you. He comes down. He and his wife have adopted three children, all from the same mother, all different fathers. And he told me one heartbreaking horror story after another after another that ended up making our experience look pretty mild comparatively. And as I sat there and listened to him, my heart absolutely broke. And then he said two things that day that have stuck in my mind. One was, I never thought serving God would look like this. And the other thing that he said was, my life with my kids is completely out of control. And my heart broke for him. And so as, as, as we think about, now understand out of control is subjective, right? Okay, out of control is subjective. Um, things may seem out of control with a 10-year-old um, 
and then with, an, with a 17-year-old, they're completely different. So there's a subjectivity here. But when things seem out of control, when you feel like you are at your wit's end, you don't know exactly what in the world you're going to do next, I want to just make a, a, a few uh, suggestions. And I hope that you see the, uh, the biblical undergirding in these things. First of all, sit down, find a, and here's the qualification, a godly and realistic couple. Now, why do I say godly is, is, is self-evident, why you want a godly couple, but a realistic couple, here's, here's one of the, the issues. In fact, we were, we were talking about this last night a little bit um, after the session. When adoptive parents say to somebody, you, you really, really don't understand. Okay? Most of the time people look at us and say, hey, you know what, you know, life is life, kids are kids, trouble is trouble, just find a couple that is realistic, who understands these things, either because they've gone through it enough or because they've seen it enough to know that you're not just making it up. So for us, that godly couple has been my fellow elder, Dave Gamble, and his wife. Dave, um, as, as, as a district court judge in our county, it's small enough. He does juvenile. He does, he does the, all the drug cases, all the civil cases, everything, right? So he actually has seen this civil uh, or the, uh, the, the juvenile process, and he's been a judge, just retired for 26 years. So he's... He understands the way these things work. He's compassionate. He's he, being involved, being the founder of City of Refuge. He's seen a lot of different um, adoptions. And one of the best things that we've been able to do is sit down and actually be completely transparent with them and tell them exactly what our struggles are, how we're feeling, how it's affecting our marriage, how we feel frustrated either with Alex or with each other or, or with life, and, and to know that they're going to listen to us and they're going to give us loving biblical counsel and they're not going to walk away going, I can't believe that's the, that's the pastor of our church. Realistic, godly couples will... Now, you, you've got to be careful. You've got to be careful because you talk about the potential of being misunderstood and then being, then being categorized as, a, as basically a, just a crummy parent. Okay? It is in, incredibly risky to open up, but you need to find somebody that you can do that with that you know loves you and loves that kid, all right? I would also suggest highly when things seem out of control um, to get the elders of your church involved. We are raising these children as a family in the context of a local church. What do we do when we encounter various trials in life, God's given us elders that we go to who help us. Well, there's also something else, and that is that that kid looks at those men as 
Those are leaders in the church. There's a level of respect there. And to actually go in and sit down with two or three of the elders and say, you know what, we're having some real difficulty. Um, we need some help. We need prayer. And then for, for the child to realize, you know what, look at this. Mom and dad are, are actually not trying to hide what goes on, but they're being honest about what goes on, and they're getting the elders to help. It can have a, a huge impact on the kid. Getting the authorities involved is sometimes the last option because of um, the connections that we have in our church we were able to actually go and see one of the juvenile probation officers um, about eight ten times over the years um, and uh, not a believer okay? but guess what enough common grace and experience to be able to talk to him in ways that he wouldn't hear at church. <laughs> All right? And, and so that was, that was huge. And then, of course, there's always, as a last resort, actually calling the authorities when things really are out of control. Well, grace to help in time of need. When we enter into this um, wonderful adventure of adoption we believe that God is actually providentially governing our lives right this isn't an accident it's not an accident that Alex is a part of our family it's not an accident that these children become a part of our family so we acknowledge theologically okay well God's in control that's why they're in our family and so sometimes we actually have to preach really hard to ourselves that just as sure as God sovereignly placed that child in our family, so he is also in sovereign control over all of the events that's going on right now, and he actually has a redemptive plan and purpose in it. That's hard. That's hard because there's a lot of pain and there's a lot of difficulty and there's, there's a lot of second guessing, but our belief in the sovereignty of God can be a lifeline to us so that if I go to bed and, I, and, and, and my tendency is to say, what have we done? What have we done? One particular night I went to bed after a very, very, very nasty confrontation with Alex. And I laid there and I cried. And I thought, what have we done to Ashley and Zach? And as I laid there, Ariel says, you know, God's in control of this. It's a bummer being married to someone more spiritual than you. <laughs> and she, she helped me because I could have sat there and I could, I could have actually just, just immersed myself in those kinds of thoughts. And what would have happened? The, my resentment would have just built and built and built and it would have carried over. And we were able to pray together and say, Lord, he's here because it's your plan. And today was another step in your redemptive purposes. And I don't know what you're doing, but we trust you. You're in control. And then...
preaching the gospel of adoption to ourselves. Do you know how many times I've said to myself, you know, you can be more patient because God adopted you and He's way more patient than, with you than you are with Him. You know? And so realizing actually that, 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 that God's adopted us, God is a father, and, and how have we turned out? You know, we've, you know, sometimes we're the defiant ones and we're the rebellious ones and God doesn't just you know, send us off to military school. And so, so there are times where we have to just remind ourselves of the grace that we've received in order to actually soften our hearts, in order to extend grace to them, and then remember that you always always can fall back on, on this reality. Lord, where would they be if you hadn't brought them into our family? Now, they don't appreciate that. They don't see that. But that's okay. I have an idea of where Alex would be. And when I think about that... Um, it makes dealing with the trials a little, little easier. So, the God who loves me can empower me to love Him. And um, the God who gives me grace can empower me to extend grace. And the God who rescued me can give me the grace to remember that this child's been rescued to the praise of His glorious grace. Anybody have any questions, comments, protests, riots, demonstrations, outbursts, letters to the editor? <laughs> yes? We've all been rescued. Amen. Um, Amen. Yeah. And um, I have 29 year olds, 23 and 17, adopted at birth. The first one, extremely strong will. And I just have a question. Um, two questions that I'll just blend together, even though they don't go really together. But, um, do you ever think that um, the strong-willed boy um, is just strong-willed? And um, when you came to that place of, because of God's grace, of seeing that he, you do things different with him, no matter how long it took, it didn't matter. Yeah. And that God has used all of this. But... Um, did you ever see, like, because I was, uh, my parents were divorced when I was five, uh -huh. and I was strong-willed, uh -huh. and we didn't have the healthiest biblical family, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and so I feel like that God has used me as a Christian adoptive mother mm -hmm. to be very sensitive to my kids, yeah. because I want them all to blend together and feel like, at the end of what you just said, mm -hmm. but it's really a process of a, of a family. Mm. Um, I don't know if I made any sense, but I, I, how did Alex turn out now? I mean, after all of that, I mean, how is he doing? Well, um, he, you know, he's doing so much better, and um, the conflict is far less frequent now. I mean, every, from every day to now two or three times a week, which is, it's a, that's huge to us. It's huge. And I, I, I attribute that to the approach of trying to de-escalate the situations, okay? Because it just seemed like it would just pile up. So, so he's, he's doing much better. Um, he, he's ready to move out, but he doesn't want to move away from home, okay? So this, understand this. Here's a kid who, 
who's felt, who's had this sense of rejection his whole life, right? And just fearful that, and that's one thing about, you know, because in a sense, you know, a strong will is strong will and all that. But you put the complicating factor of feeling rejected into that mix, and there's a complexity there, right? So here's a kid who has at times told us that, um, that he doesn't like us, that we're not good parents, that he wants to move away, that he doesn't want to live with us anymore. And he had four track scholarship offers, and he refused all of them because he doesn't want to move away from home. Now I'm thinking, what are you doing? <laughs> you know? I mean, man, if I got a track scholarship, that'd be a miracle. And I, you know, but he, so there's an attachment, but there's also that, that back and forth of one minute, very detached, and the next minute, I love you, Dad. And so there, there still are these, these things in his life that, that I don't think he understands, and I think that he struggles with them. Um, but things are certainly better at home, and I, we're so thankful to God for that. Um, you know, so, and, and the other thing is he and his brother get along really, really well now, and they used to, you know, just fight like, like two uh, cage fighters. And I kept telling Zach, you know, he's going to get bigger than you really quick. <laughs> Better get your licks in now. <laughs> really quick, Paul Tripp. Yes. Does he have adopted children? You yes, yes. He does? Yes. Well, at least a daughter that I know. Okay. Yeah, yes. yeah, Thanks. yeah. So, yeah, Jason. About the de-escalating, you know, we have talked to you a little bit about our son's premium alcohol, and when we send him to his room, he rages. Right. And that's when he's saying a lot of hurtful things. Right. You know, I, not only just I hate you, but actually saying things like I want to hurt you. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And we we're right where you're. We're talking about the. We realize it's not working. We can't calm him down from that. We can't spank him out of it. Right. We can't. So we are right now avoiding de-escalation by just letting him be in there. Yeah. But then that just breaks your heart. Yeah. And so I just don't know what what I should do, like, uh, should we let him just rage in there? I mean, he, he will eventually, he eventually just kind of snaps out of it. You, you and, and I'm not, I'm not an expert, I'm just a failed parent, all right? But you have to ask yourself, what, what are the viable alternatives? And there comes a point where you realize there's nothing that you can do other than you just allow your heart to be broken um, and try to allow the situation to de-escalate. Um, and then in those moments of clarity, um, look for those as opportunities to speak redemptively to him and to reassure him you know, of your love for him. Um, even, even if he's just said some of the most awful things that you could imagine, you know, and, and, and it kills you as a parent, Right. Um, I mean, I remember the first time uh, he looked at me and he said, you're a terrible father. Oh, it it killed me. You know, it killed me. 
and and that's mild to what yeah. some kids say. And here's the reality is that that you can't do anything about that except make sure that you don't react to it. You, you can't react to it. It's going to break your heart, but you can't respond in a way where you try to talk them out of it. You don't really mean that. Yeah. Well, you know, uh, yeah, try to convince them of that at that point. Yeah. It's just, it's not, that's not going to work, you know. And, um, you know, that was one of the things. When we had Alex in foster care, we, you know, we, we were very limited in how we could discipline him. And uh, time out was always a disaster because he would just, like, tear things to pieces or, you know, do something crazy. You know, he took a, a red felt pen. He was in time out, and, which I, I always thought time out was stupid. Um, but we had only had so many options. So he took a string, tied it to the end of a red felt pen, and spun this pen around in the, in the room, and Ariel walked in, and she said, what? Did, I mean, because it looks like a, a crime scene, right? Like, look like a massacre happened in there, you know? So you couldn't even trust him to just go and be in his room, you know, unless you were willing just to duct tape him and then bungee cord him to the bed, you couldn't even trust him to just be in the room. And so um, these, these are really tough things, but that, that, that statement by Rosaria Butterfield was so uh, important to me and I just you know just read it like just a few months ago um, when she made the comment about um, do I love Jesus enough to face my ch children's personal oh, potential rejection of me you know and w when we enter into adoption um, that I want I want Christians to adopt I want Christians to adopt even more, but I also want Christians to go into adoption with their eyes open into what they're getting into. Because if not, it's going to be one of the most crushing things in their life. And just realizing this is a ministry and part of it for God. This may sound pessimistic, but God's calling me to suffer in this. You know? Oh. We have eight kids, seven of them are adopted. Um, the oldest two were from birth, we knew birth parents. And then we had a biological daughter. Those kids are now 25, 23, and 21. Mary's doing great. Um, grandbaby's December, first one. <laughs> then we have these five that are still at home. Um, sibling group of three boys that have been with us for 13 and a half years. Um, they were one, two, and four when they came to us. Um, and a now 11-year-old who came to us at seven months. And then um, hmm. just a year ago, um, we, a little girl, God brought, three years ago, brought her in, into our lives from Uganda, but it took two years mm -hmm. to actually get her here. So she um, has been with us in our home for a year. And um, our the oldest one that's home, a boy, the 17-year-old, <coughs> with you. Um, it's been a nightmare from the day he moved into our house when he was four. Um, and now our, this, she just turned 13, year old daughter who abandoned at six and then physically, severely physically abused for the four years until we got her out of that situation and, and from a different culture and so move her into our home. And so, and it's just, just stories go on. But we've been desperate. I mean, desperate and we've you know the 
and counseling through IDCD with the older one, we tried so hard to find mm. all the right answers and parent biblically and all the things you're saying with this one, with our older and um, nothing works. And, and I love IDCD counselors. I love biblical counseling, but they're not equipped to do this with these kids because as you're saying, there's something different going on in their brain. It's different. And I just recently, out of desperation, have just been depending on common grace like I've never depended on it before. God's big enough to lead me to wherever we have to go and do whatever we have to do to get help for our family. So we started doing that. And one of the books that I have found so helpful, and I'm hearing what you're saying, I'm hearing so much of this, this book in what you're saying, and it's called Beyond Consequences, Logic, and Control. Hmm. Um, Heather Forbes, and she may be a Christian. There are certain things and that, that sound like that, mm-hmm. but um, mm-hmm. there's so much psycho-nothingness in parts of it. Mm-hmm. I mean, you've got to love yourself more. That's my problem. Right, I right, yeah, right, 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 yeah, yeah. Yeah, right. So I have to, I mean, I take notes and have to rewrite it and just like every place that it says this, replace it with, because you don't trust that God loves you enough. So. Mm, right. But the part that has just been transforming and, and, and really speaks to this as far as, you know, putting them in their room and these kids, this is their, and she goes through the science of what happens in a traumatized child's brain, the parts that are affected. Last night when you said that neocortex, their frontal lobe is, is altered and they don't function out of it thinking part of their brain. There is no talking them out of it. Right. And so and so this whole de-escalation thing, she doesn't, it's just, you don't respond, you don't react, you don't engage them in those times. You come alongside them and put your armor up and when they're flipping out, mm-hmm. and, and if they can't be touched, then you just say, I love you right now. Mm-hmm. And you don't even attempt to you know, do anything until yeah. afterwards, which means I'm ch- I'm following my daughter as we're trying to eat ice cream, and she's flipping out and walking out the door, basket ramens, and I'm just trying to follow along, and she's knocking chairs out a lot as if she's walking, yeah. and people are, you know, and she's Ugandan, so I mean, we're clearly... Right. So, yeah. And, yeah. but just, and then afterwards, it's, it's, it's bringing them close in those yeah. times of... It's not sending them to their room because they're responding out of yeah. fear, yeah. out of fear of all the things that have happened, the rejection, yeah. the abuse, that they don't hear our words the same way that the normal right. children hear our words. Yeah. And so this, it's volume one and two, and they've been transforming as far as that, yeah. taking out all the things. I want yeah. to take that book, give them grace, um, these children that Elise yeah. and Jessica uh-huh. wrote, and Elise's new book, Found in Him, and make those into a book about adoptive, yeah. adoptive parents, yeah. it's desperately needed. Yeah. Um, yeah. But if, if you, I, I can't recommend those highly enough with 5,000 caveats about right. what it needs right. to be. Right. You have to, you have to blend the things you right. know about who God is and who you right. are in Christ right. into it. But yeah. it has made an incredible difference. Yeah. In our family, yeah, in short I, I I really appreciate that. Beyond consequences. Beyond consequences, okay. logic and control. Okay, um, and let me just say one quick thing about that because I think it's important. Here we are at a biblical counseling conference, and we believe in the sufficiency of God's word. Um, but 
we also have to understand that oftentimes if a child has been, first of all, either abused or while, uh, you know, while mom is pregnant, there's drug and alcohol abuse, there are physiological factors that have to be taken into account. And just to ignore that, um, you know, is, is, is really to our detriment, all right? So that's it. If you have any questions or comments or anything, um, I'll stick around for a few minutes and appreciate you guys being, being here. And God bless all of you in your, uh, in your journeys. Copyright 2013, IBCD, All Rights Reserved. More free audios can be found on our website at www.ibcd.org.